0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. We are talking about a very popular book this week, and we've got a popular returning co-host. And by the way, it's by a very popular author, GM Yasser Sarawan, with I am Jeremy Silman helping him out. Um, so this is a book that's especially helpful for club players. And our guest co-host, Neil Bruce, who we will introduce in a minute, uh, picked this one because those of you who follow him on Twitter know that he's a voracious reader of chess books and other books as well. And this was his pick out of all the books that he read. And this is not one that I'd read, but obviously Yasser is a much beloved figure who I dream of someday getting on the podcast. Um so i'm I was happy to talk about it, and happy to have Neil back for those of you who haven't heard this type of show before uh this is where basically every month, except for last month. Um, we take a break from interviewing someone properly and actually read and discuss a chess book. So I think it's a good way if you're trying to decide if you want to read a certain book or just refresh some memories um, or learn a few concepts while you're on the go or doing the dishes or whatever. It's a nice way to do it and it's a nice break from format for me. So without further ado, let's bring in our popular guest co-host returning after our first Discussion of Woodpecker Method in April of 2020 and now joining us again here in October. Neil Bruce. What's new, Neil?
1: Hey, Ben. I am so excited to be back with you. I felt like it was a blast talking about Woodpecker Method. And I've been really focused on studying strategy. And I, I really love this book. I'm excited to talk about it. A little bit about me. I'm 51 years old. I've got a full-time job and a family. I I learned the rules of chess from my father as a child. I didn't really study chess until my late 30s. I played my first tournament game uh, when I was 40. I, I My first rating was a little over 1,100. I'm now rated a little over 1,700. Uh, and and as you know, I spent four years, the last four years working on mastering basic tactics. And now I'm focused on mastering basic strategy. And I've, I've studied a bunch of books uh, on strategy so far this year. Uh, I, I read Simple Chess. Best Lessons of a Chess Coach, Amateur Mind, How to Reassess Your Chess, Chess club, for, chess Strategy for Club Players, Find the Right Plan, and Winning Chess Strategies. And I'm telling you, for somebody who's uh, kind of below the 2000 level, I'm convinced that Winning Chess Strategies by Yasser with Jeremy Silman is, is the best intro to strategy book. We'll talk about why, uh, but I'm really glad that it's now been reprinted by every man And uh, my goal in this podcast is to get everyone to fall in love with the book.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, if and, you know, time is the most precious resource. So anyone who's trying to figure out what to study and I know, and I I would say that this is an episode that is kind of special for club players. Um, Shout out to all you club players out there. I consider myself as like former 2200, now 2100. I, I consider myself as like a fringe club player but i will say that uh this book um i did feel like it's it's definitely it's more basic than some of the other books we've talked about which i think is a good thing um and i know that club players in particular often feel like the strategy aspect can be um a little daunting especially if you don't have a coach um you know we're always saying do tactics do tactics do tactics and you can just do tactics trainers if you want to improve at tactics and you know there's many other puzzle books that you can get but for club players, in order to uh, explain uh, complicated chess concepts in an understandable language, it's, there aren't that many choices. That's why Jeremy Soman is so beloved, and that's why we did a podcast uh, with Todd Kennedy about how to reassess your chess. And I know that that was a popular podcast, but as as Neil will say, and I think I might agree, um, th- this, is, uh, this may be an even better book, and it's certainly an, an easier read. I mean, it's... Um, it's, it's a lot shorter and more to the point, although certainly both books are worthwhile, in my opinion. But I don't want to give away too much of the content of uh, what we're going to say when we review the book, but that should give you an overview. If you're trying to decide if this podcast is worth your time, we'll, we'll go through some of the basic concepts that Yasser explains and um, share some favorite quotes and games and stuff like that. Um, I did also wanna talk about formatting. One good thing about this book is it's available in like every format under the sun. Um, it's, it's still in print in paperback, reasonably priced. Um, you can get it in Kindle. It's now newly available on Chessable. Shout out to Chessable. So if you wanna do new move trainer, move trainer um, With this book, you can do that. And of course, Yasser even made lots of videos with Chessable and is working through other books from a series called Winning Chess, uh, where he's published many beloved books and starting to share them on Chessable. So you've got, and and it's on Forward Chess too, I should say. So lots of options for me personally. I got it on Chessable, but then realized that for this particular podcast, since I'm highlighting so much, that it made more sense for me to just read it on Kindle so that I can go back. Um, but if you're reading it just for your own edification, then I think um, any of these formats are good, depending on your preferred reading style. And Neil, you always keep it real with the actual paper book, right?
1: I do. In fact, I bought the original Microsoft printed series. Of, you know, this whole series, Strategies, being part of it, years ago. Didn't really study it till more recently. And when I printed, I I posted on Twitter that I uh, my old Uh, you know, Microsoft version, Uh, Everyman Chess actually reached out to me and said, hey, you know, you need to get the updated revised version. And so they shipped me for free of the brand new version, which does have lots of corrections. I've compared them side by side. It's absolutely worth getting the new Everyman Chess one. But I was really a shout out to to them for taking care of me. And I love uh, like using a physical board and a highlighter, and a pencil, and writing all over my chess books, and like trying to figure out uh, the positions with my board. And if I totally can't figure it out, I'll pull out my computer and like it'll help me. But I think that there's something really valuable about doing the work. I I will say, though, that having seen a clip of the uh, Chessable video that goes along with the course that Yasser did for Winning Chess Strategies, there's gotta be something super powerful about watching uh, Yasser bring this book alive and talking to you in that Yasser voice that is so uh, iconic. So I, I'm sure that the Chessable version would also be great.
0: Yeah. And a lot of it comes down to individual learning style, but certainly between the fact that there's the 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 main games that this book is comprised of are Yasser games and like classic chess games, like super famous chess games. And obviously Yasser being the, um, you know, the expert of chess and knowing so many legendary f- Figures. That's a good combination for, for any video that Yasser's going to do because he can actually talk personally about his battles with Karpov when he shows uh, his, his game with Karpov or other games that Karpov played, who makes a few appearances in this book. Um, and, you know, he's even if like, he didn't know someone like Capablanca or someone uh, before his generation, still, he's like of a rarefied air where he's hearing secondhand stories, You know, not fourthhand, not fifthhand, just like something passed on to him. So I would also imagine, I watched the intro video that they did um, on Chessable, but I didn't watch the whole course. I'm actually more generally, um, I'm more of, I'm not a video learner. That's just mm. not, that's just not my learning style. That's why when I interview these uh, Twitch stars often, I have to like, um, I have to like cram to, to, to see what their content is. And even the YouTube stars, it's it's pretty rare that that's going to be the my method of right. uh, consuming content. Whereas if I interview some author, I'm almost always going to read the book because similar to you, Neil, I love reading. Um, and, and that's how I grew up learning chess. And that's how I'm most comfortable learning chess. Um, so and of course, this book has been recommended by. Lots of uh, people on the show, although not as many as some other books. I think part of that is just because we interview a lot of people who came up in kind of the older generation, but uh, GM Robert Hess, who this book was already out when he was a kid, recommended the whole series. So did Lev Albert and Sjepin Tomic, who, of course, is a little bit younger, um, accomplished adult improver, also known as Hanging Pawns, who does have a great YouTube channel. He recommended this specific book. Um, Grandmaster Maurice Ashley, um, another person I would love to have on the show, of course, um, said he, when he was on Tim Ferriss' podcast, uh, Yasser's series was the one uh, series he recommended. And by the way, if you guys haven't heard that interview, um, I think you would enjoy it. So I'll, I'll link to that as well. But anyway, I mean, you, you guys, anyone listening probably knows about Yasser Sarawan, and it's not a surprise that uh, this book would be worthwhile. So let's dig into what it is that makes this so worthwhile. So wh- what do you think, Neil?
1: Well, I think that I want to start a little bit by... Uh, explaining some context so one of the things i think we should talk about before we dig into the specific benefits of this book are you know talking about why strategy and why bother and and how does it help us and so i wrote down in preparation for this three things that have changed for me since i started reading strategy really this is a part of where i'm i'm trying to motivate people to even uh, consider this topic you know the three reasons for me is one I love, like most chess players, to watch master tournaments. And before studying strategy, I had no idea what was going on like 80% of the time, because 80% of the time, there are no tactics. There's just a bunch of pieces being moved around in seemingly random ways. And so by understanding strategy, you can actually appreciate uh, master tournaments much better to I would often be just clueless in the middle game about what to do. I would kind of randomly move my pieces out to bad squares, not knowing they were bad squares, not paying enough attention to the pawn structures because I didn't really understand what that even meant. And so I would waste like 80% of my clock in the middle game, just fumbling around. And then I would get into a time crunch and, and struggle uh, in the end game, uh, and often blunder. So I think saving time is a huge benefit of studying strategy. And then third, uh, you know, I've I've gotten better at tactics, but unless you're playing a beginner, tactics don't just happen. People don't just blunder whole pieces very often. And so you have to set them up. And by setting up your position and getting one one advantage positionally, then another, and then another, then finally you can, you can play that winning tactic that ends up giving you the uh, the win and so for me being able to better understand master games saving time in the middle game because I have a clue of what I'm doing and third ultimately just winning more games by having strategy set up my tactics has really helped my chess what are some of the things that you think about on why club players should focus on strategy
0: yeah, I think that's well said. I'm um, GM of Tech Gregorian, who I interviewed maybe about a month ago of uh, Chessmood.com. He he writes some posts in addition to sharing all his videos on his website, and he wrote a pretty compelling piece yesterday uh, earlier this week. Basically. Uh, arguing some of the reasons why club players do need to to study strategy in particular and why chess is not just tactics. Um, And he he made some strong arguments. He even showed examples where engines can't find things. And he showed a lot of examples where like an engine just can't explain something to you. So obviously, the AI in chess is just off the charts and only getting better. And with stuff like decode chess, attempting to explain ideas to you, uh, that can be helpful but there's just sort of no substitute for, for having learned something, having had something passed down to you. And one thing I've noticed through the course of doing this podcast, I, you know, I started playing chess when I was 12 and the bulk of my i mean basically all of my improvement was like 12 to 18 when i was just like immersed in it um and for me even though i of course like every chess player wish i started earlier i still feel like it's basically like a native language to me mm-hmm. and and that's what i notice when i talk to players like yourself neil um who who learned it as an adult that these things that um a lot of um, more experienced players who grew up with chess might consider intuitive, uh, don't necessarily consider intuitive. And there's there's not that much out there that does a good job explaining it. Um, so for me, this was like a, a fun stroll down memory lane. And also, like um, sometimes it would give me new language for concepts that I was already familiar with. But often, it was better language than the language that I was using. So that had tremendous value to me, both just as a chess player and as a chess teacher but I can see why for, for less experienced players, especially adult improvers, it could have even more value. Um, Should we dig into the book, Neil? What do you think?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, on this book, what do you think is the, uh, is it's what level is it set for? I'll, I'll, I'll mention that I, I would put it at around, you know, kind of 1200 ish to 2000 and, you know, I would say really anyone who doesn't have a firm handle on basic strategy should should study this book. I, I mean, as we talked about in our last podcast, Delmaza f- famously won the under 2000 World Open with almost no strategy understanding. And so you can and I've beat over to like in over the board tournament conditions, long games, I've beat three players who were rated over 2,000 with zero uh, strategic knowledge, purely tactical knowledge. So there are, I think, lots of players who overestimate their abilities in chess, in particular overestimate their positional understanding. And so I would say the players I've seen who are under 2,000, most of them have a weaker foundation in strategy and would serve themselves well to going back to the basics and reading this book and then following up with other related things. But so that's where I would stay it, like 1200 to 2000. What's your view on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, definitely. I agree. 1200. I even feel like maybe down to a thousand, like it's not the kind of book where, where if, if it's a bit of a reach, you're not going to feel lost at sea reading it. Um, because it's, um, it's explained very clearly. So you might not get everything, but definitely on the lower bound. I, I agree with you on the higher one. I'm not as sure, but as I think about it, I, maybe I'm a little biased because, um, one of the things that made me think um, maybe this is for slightly less experienced players is I was getting I think basically all the quiz questions right, which I I never do. Like e- <laughs> even even uh, reassess your chess, which um, I also consider to be a more club player friendly. Book, Although I do think that that one has slightly more advanced material overall, first of all, just has more material, but also slightly more advanced. But even that one, a lot of those quizzes stumped me, whereas this one, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on the quizzes. And by the way, we should mention the quizzes, of course, are a great feature. I like them in most, in basically any book that is presenting material in like an explanatory fashion and then quizzes you on it, I'm always on board with that. I always think that's a good way for a book to be presented. Neil, as you read through this book for the first time, how, how were you generally doing with the quiz questions?
1: I, I think I struggled the very first time I read this book, but it was because I really had zero understanding of, of strategic principles. I agree with you that the tests in Reassess Your Chess are much harder and in fact what's great about reassess your chess silman grades them he says like this is from 16 to 18 this yeah. is from 18 to 2000 or 2200 so I, I i classify winning chess strategies as a basic strategy book and i classify how to reassess your chess as an intermediate strategy book uh, we'll talk about this more later i think that almost all the the basic principles are in both and winning tra- winning Chess Strategies is 400 pages less. So if you're trying to understand the basics of you know strategy, I would not start with a war and peace-like tomb, right. which is how to reassess your chess. I would start with winning chess strategies. I frankly would also put in a plug for a simple chess. I think that's another excellent small book that's like an intro. But yeah, I, I like the puzzles. They're definitely easier. I definitely did better on them than how to reassess your chess. But I do think that you make a great point Ben people who did not get coached as a child chess is a different game uh as an adult you come to this thing and it is uh it's just a, a mystery uh, wrapped in an enigma in a closed off dark box it's like all bits of chess is just really hard to understand and you know, I'm chugging through it first with t- basic tactics and now with basic strategy and, it, and like the doors are opening and the lights are coming on and it, it, like it, like it's a full discovery kind of situation. But I think that it's very hard for GMs and IMs who were basically at master strength at the age of 12 to relate to a 40 or 50 year old struggling to understand what is a weak p- pawn or what is a weak square. You know, these are not obvious concepts Uh, to people who didn't grow up with chess.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. And and it's not for nothing. You know, as you mentioned it, I'm thinking like the other thing is I think these skills, like they do need to be explained, but it's, I think that they they might be more learnable in a sense than learning how to calculate many many moves. Like that's a real stretch, you know. That just takes many many hours of grunt work. Whereas when when Yasser explains a concept like weak squares or something like that, you can begin to grasp it, and then you can be on the lookout and have it on your radar. It's not you know because it's um it's it's just an idea that you hadn't been introduced to. It's not like an act of brute brute force the way that calculating ten moves ahead. Might be, and for that reason, it's not for nothing that people like Grandmaster Ben Feingold uh, talk about playing positionally as old man chess. Because, because as you get older, you can still uh, you still have whatever positional sense you had. You're able to keep that, and maybe even expand your your overall. Positional skills as life goes on, but calculating is something where if you know if you can maintain a level at a certain age, you're doing well as opposed to actually improving. Now, again, I don't want to like totally discourage um, listeners who are you know say over forty like my like myself and Neil and and want to improve their calculation. It, it's not to say it can't be done, but we've certainly. Uh, we've certainly had our share of, I've had my share of guests on the show who say that like, even if their calculation at its peak is, um, you know, the same, like you might be able to reach the same height in terms of what you're able to visualize, but there's just going to be more holes in your analysis. You know, there's just going to, you're just going to miss a few moves here and there. And that adds up in a competitive game. Um, So anyway, I feel like I'm, rambling a bit, but I do think this stuff is important. And hopefully uh, Neil and I have convinced you guys that this is this is um, worthwhile and it's a nice break from tactics as well. So I'd like to um, dive in and read the opening paragraph, but first let's uh, take a break and hear from our good friends at Chessable. Did you guys know that you can get this course there? Um, so we'll, we'll get to my commercial now and then we'll bring it back and dig into the book. Listeners, you will never believe which Chessable author I am going to promote on this here ad from our friends at Chessable.com Grandmaster Yasser Sarawan. That's right, in addition to winning chess strategy, which you are hearing plenty about on this podcast, great book, Yasser is also out with winning chess tactics now available on Chessable.com. And of course, their move trainer technology enables you to remember everything that you've learned. It's not enough to look at these patterns once. You need to look at them again and again, and all the better if Chessable does the reminding for you and brings them up when you need to know them. Also, Grandmaster Setha Ramans out with a new course on Double King pong Lifetime Repertoires. So lots to check out and learn from from Chessable.com as always. Okay, back to the book recap. All right, and we are back. And Neil is going to read the first two paragraphs from Winning Chess Strategies.
1: I've now written six books about winning chess. All the rules and basic information were covered in my first book, Play Winning Chess. Tactical themes were explored in my second book, Winning Chess Tactics. And now in Winning Chess Strategies, I take you on a journey to a whole different level of chess understanding. On this level, You no longer spend entire games reacting to your opponent. Instead, you are proactive. You think through a position, set a goal, and methodically find ways to reach it. Hundreds of thousands of books have been written about chess. What can you hope to learn from this one? With all modesty, a lot. The aim of this book is simple, to make you think about chess in a different way. In my two previous books, I showed you chess as an art and a sport. In this book, I show you chess as a science. My goal in this book is to make you realize that behind the pushing of little wooden men around a checkered board lies a lot of thought. Some of the ideas that make up the science of chess have been used for centuries, millennia, in fact. They have been researched recreated and refined to suit our purposes and are used by today's grandmasters to reach the perennial goal to win that next game of chess.
0: Okay, good stuff. Yeah, good intro. And by the way, we should say, I believe this book was originally published in 1994 and then there's a newer newer edition from 2011 so that gives you a little bit more historical concept and context in 1994 in particular um as uh Todd Kennedy and I discussed when reass- when we talked about reassess your chess um i uh i feel like there weren't chess was just beginning to be explained in a more understandable language um which i think uh, writing has gotten more conversational generally. Like if you look at the way sports writing has evolved over the years, um, someone like Bill Simmons came in and ushered in a new generation where you just wrote like a normal person and kind of, instead of trying to like write in this sort of flowery prose to like heighten everything that happens. And I think a similar dynamic unfolded in chess and Sarah Juan and Silman, who of course are friends. And of course they collaborated on this book. You can sort of see their imprint. Where like you're beginning to talk like a normal person when you talk about chess, um, which is which is welcome in my mind. Um, so that gives you a nice little uh, you know um, inspiring intro, but it doesn't tell that much. I feel like about what the game is, what the book is really about. So I wanted to read just two more paragraphs, also from the first few pages, um, where Yaz lays out his chess framework. So, and this is p- specifically about this book. So he says, the goal of strategy is to gain a chess advantage. Being the proud adv- owner of a chess advantage simply means that your position has certain positive features that your opponent's is lacking. There are two types of advantages, static and dynamic. A static advantage is a long-term one, permanent. A dynamic, ad- excuse me, a dynamic advantage is like a tactic, temporary. You may have a dynamic advantage because your king is safe, where- whereas your opponent hasn't yet castled. When your opponent castles and brings his or her king to safety, your dynamic advantage disappears. For this reason, it's important to take every opportunity to create static advantages. Put your faith in only those features that will be part of your position for a long time. The role of strategy is to create one or more of the following static advantages. They are more material, superior peace mobility, superior pawn structure, more territory, which means space, or a safe king position, like if you're castled and your opponent has not has lost the right to castle. So those two paragraphs, I think, really uh, encapsulate kind of the overall philosophy of the book, and uh, I'm, I love the way he explained that. Did that Did that strike a chord with you, Neil?
1: For sure, and and I love I love the way Yasser writes. I love the way Yasser talks. I can tell you, having read lots of chess books, most are incredibly boring written probably by people who are boring, uh, but Yasser is not a boring man. And that comes across clearly in his books. All of his books that that uh, he he's written, that I've read, have this love of the game oozing out of it. And so it's hard not to feel like it's a joy. And if you're going to read a chess book, you might as well read one that brings you a little joy.
0: Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's why he's one of the most beloved features, uh, one of the most beloved um characters in the chess world. And that's why you should come on the podcast, Yasser Ahem. Um, So if you guys see Yasser, tell him, stop telling me to get him on the podcast, tell him to come on the podcast. Okay. So with that out of the way, 11 chapters, the little and little tests sprinkled throughout. So just to give you guys a little more context of what you might learn about, here are the 11 chapters, the importance of strategy, making the most of a material advantage, stopping enemy counterplay, Understanding where the pieces go, superior or minor pieces, how to use pawns, the creation of targets, territorial domination, attacking the king, faulty strategies, and the great masters of strategy, which is my favorite chapter because he just goes through Steinitz, Rubinstein, Capablanca, Nimzowitsch, Tigran Petrosian, and Karpov, and just kind of uh, shows a few examples of why they why he considers them to be the greatest strategic players of all time. Um, Neil, what, what, what resonated the most with you amongst these chapters?
1: Yeah, chapter two, making the most of material advantage, really stood out and changed the way I look at chess. I can tell you it's the only book of the seven chapter, seven books I've read about strategy that really takes this question seriously. And probably the most important thing, you can teach a club player. Let's say you're in a tournament and you're two 1,500-level players and one person hangs a rook, and you get it. How many times have you heard, oh, I won a piece, but somehow I lost in the end? It happens all the time in um, club-level chess. And it's because often people don't follow the advice that Yasser lays down in this important chapter. Number one, after you win a material, make your king safer. Like king safety, number one. Number two, get your entire army into the fight, put them on good squares, which either forces your opponent to go to weaker squares or to trade and trades are going to help you win the end game. So that's number two. And then third, if you're in a position where uh, they get some counterplay for getting for that material loss, you be willing to throw back some material their way in order to um, create a positional equilibrium that still potentially gives you uh, an game advantage. As an example, there is a player, much stronger player than I am, posted a puzzle on Twitter, and uh, he was up two pawns, but he was facing two monster bishops. And so for me, I was just like, what would Yasser do? Throw back a pawn, trade off all the pieces, go to a simple boring winning endgame, collect the point. And it was obvious to me what I should do is give back that pawn and induce all these trades on D4. And he um, didn't do that. He didn't read this book. Uh, He lost the game. And so I think that it will change the way you look at chess if you understand these three principles around how to win with the material advantage.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I liked the quote and you sort of alluded to it. I was managed to dig it out just now where he says, um, a material advantage is a bit like ballast in a hot air balloon. If you start sinking, you can throw some of it over to the side to stop your descent. Mm. And yeah, that see, that chapter is an example of one where I felt like it was sort of ingrained in me. So that one didn't resonate with me as much as some of the more positional ones. Like I like when you talked about weak squares and said that you you may think you can't capture a weak square, but you actually can capture a weak square because like once you take control of it, then then you can use it. Like, so some of the more sort of nuanced positional concepts were my favorite parts, But um, but there's a lot of good stuff. I mean, so here are three of my favorite instructive tidbits from the book. Um, He talks about different kinds of bishops. I know we talk about different quality of pieces um, generally when we review these books because it comes up periodically, but this is another example of where it was a concept I was familiar with, but he had a formulation that made it crystal clear for me, which was the idea of good bishops, bad bishops, and active bishops. Which some of you may have heard heard that formulation before, but but I had not. But, but the idea is, I mean, the textbook definition of good and bad bishops, of course, is just if they're constrained by pawns on by their own pawns blocked on their own color. But there can be some situations um, where you, where your bishop is outside of the pawn chain, um, where it's in theory a bad bishop, but in practice actually pretty useful. But He does a nice job explaining it and then giving little quizzes like, what kind of bishop is this? What kind of bishop is this? And stuff like that can be really good to train you to think about it in your game as you evaluate uh, when to trade. Uh, Number two, again, we alluded to this in one of the quotes we read, but the idea of a static versus a dynamic advantage. This is another one that in my chess reading in recent years, I've certainly come across it um, and learned to think about it more. But... Um, th- I hadn't seen as many examples dating back to 1991, where you you again compare something that's permanent, like doubled pawns or a king that can't castle, compared to just like you've got your pieces out faster and you better take advantage um, quickly. Now, one tiny thing. I mean, it's kind of absurd for me to like push back against something Yasser said, but in that quote that he read that we read earlier in the book, where he said, "Strive for static advantage is not dynamic." I don't think you necessarily need to strive for one over the other. It's more that you need to be aware of the nature of each of them. So if you do have a dynamic advantage rather than a static one, you should know that you need to act quickly. Um, So that's just my little quibble with it. But overall, I find uh, his talking about that to be quite instructive. And last but not least, on my end, he gives uh, four rules for attacking, which I think are are also good. So I think um, another common issue for club players is to know when to attack. You might – you might be the type of player who loves to attack no matter what, or you might be kind of a, a more conservative player. But in any event, it's, it's nice to sort of have concrete heuristics in mind for when to attack. And he gives the following rules. Um, he says, if you have a space advantage in the vicinity of the enemy king, you should usually play in that sector. If several of your pieces are close to the enemy king, while his defenders are few or far away, that is, you have superior force, your chances of a kingside attack succeeding are probably excellent. If the pawns surrounding the enemy king have been ripped apart or weakened in any way, you can consider an assault in one of the previous conditions. Uh, if one of the previous conditions also exists, and if you have a substantial lead in development, you must make use of it before your opponent catches up and your development fades away. A lead in development is a signal for attack. One of the most one of the most common. So. That does get to what I was saying a minute ago. He does say what to do, but I just I, – I wouldn't think of uh, uh, either dynamic or static advantage, one being inherently better. I would just have different frameworks in mind for for how to approach it.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think that's a fair quibble. I think Yaster is a naturally more strategic player. So he's going to go for those long-term static advantages that are never going to go away. And he loves to talk about just torturing his opponent by slowly stealing more space and crippling all his pieces and and basically being Carpovian, so I think that I agree with you. It's like I'm all about art of the attack and like using your dynamic advantages to have a quick mate when you can. I don't think one is any better than the other, but I totally get if you're a positional player, you love the torture.
0: Yeah, and of course, in his announcing, he's always talking about how he's a, he's a um, habitual pawn grubber or whatever it is. Right. So like that also is is actually it's it's more of a positional style, believe it or not, because you're basically just trying to snatch and grab. You know, you're trying to get the the booty and get out and then just batten down the hatches and you're willing to play a long game to win as opposed to where you're going for like a knockout blow where you might be the one giving up the material. So yeah, I mean, it it all fits together, but just just a minor um, detail. So what other, uh, obviously there's only so much we can highlight, audio only. Um, in terms of the instructional co- content. but but are there any other lessons that you feel can be imparted, Neil?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll list a few because I'll, I'll tell you this podcast is awesome because we have one person who thinks everything, is obvious about chess and you have one person who thinks nothing is obvious about chess and it, and, it, and I just get infuriated when people are like isn't it so obvious I'm like no man I'm not stupid but it's just not obvious and so like it's great I'm here for you every club player who has lost a game after being up a rook I'm here for you this is for you man so my thing I feel like I I... I'm
0: not strong enough to play the role of the arrogant grandmaster but okay I'll roll well, with it go ahead it,
1: you got half of it, Ben. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So my, advent, my, um, like pearls of wisdom, just a few of them. One was this idea, a couple of thoughts around pawn play. So I love this quote, make your center indestructible and it will choke the life out of your opponent. So what do you take from that? I have often got, a you know, a pawn on E4 and a pawn on D4, but then I randomly put my pieces around it and they get taken and they're not indestructible. And so that's just a terrible strategy. And so now if I can get that pawn duo on like D4 and E4, then I'm trying to get all my other white pieces to protect those two pawns. Because if you can control the center, chances are the other player is going to try a faulty strategy to break through. And then you take advantage of that often through tactics. So that's one key uh, concept is make your center indestructible. Another thing that, again... I'm a stupid uh, adult learner. I'm not the child prodigy. Uh, I never really looked at the board as an important part of the game, The, 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 the squares of the board. I thought they were mostly just a place, a universe by which the pieces, which was all I cared about, live. And until you see the board as as important as the pieces, you will never understand the concept of a weak square. You will never understand the concept of space. And so this book opened my eyes and the other trust strategy books also helped open my eyes to realize that the board is as important as pieces. I, I talked to someone once uh, when I said, oh, like, that's a fork. You're forking, you know, G7 and this bishop. And, and he's like, you can fork a square. Right. And I, again, you know, for Ben, it's obvious But for everyone who's an adult (laughs) improver, it's not obvious. And so I think that was transformational to see the board as an integral part of the game. Uh, I I think this also this idea that whenever you have two moves and one of them not only advances your plan but thwarts your opponent's plan, pick that one over the other one. It's a nice way to restrict counterplay when you can do a move that does both. Uh, the uh, you know we talked a little bit about static and dynamic. I won't I won't add on what you said, but there's some good points there. Target consciousness, which is also by the way a, a chapter in How to Reassess Your Chess, is another kind of mind blowing game changing concept. Uh, if you can win a queen side pawn, you can often use that as pressure for the rest of the game to win. Whereas if you instead say, "Well, there's a queenside pawn I can take, or I can I can attack this king that's totally defended, and I have no chance of winning," but what do I know? I just know how to attack, and then you lose the game, and you wonder why, like why, why? This isn't what what's going wrong? And so this target consciousness, the ability to look for a, the uh, you know winning a pawn or winning uh, you know a a say a, a Bishop and a rook, or a bishop and a knight for a, for a rook. These little gains that you can achieve, uh, whether they are or aren't near the king, are often enough to tip the scales in a game. So
0: can I just hop in for one sec? So the definition of target consciousness is he defines it as when you, when you see a target, basically relentlessly try to attack it. Is that right, Neil?
1: Yeah. So let's say there was an isolated pawn on the queen side, and you can, um, you know, put a rook right in front of it, or somehow blockade it, and then like get all your pieces to take that one pawn that can t- tip the entire game because one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to win the end game or chances are your t- your opponent's going to freak out knowing they're going to probably lose the, the end game and, and start an attack that's totally unjustified. Again, if you're a club player, <laughs> they're probably going to start an attack that's totally unjustified and then they're going to lose even more material. And so one of the things that I've learned from Yasser is the, uh, the benefit of making your opponents stew in their own losing juices and just suffer and have the emotional torment that requires them to emotionally lash out in terrible ways. And then ultimately, um, you know, end the game themselves by making bad moves. So I think this, this aggression that most chess players have is useful, but sometimes it's better to just slowly strangle your opponent. It's a different way to play. It's equally as good a way of play. So those are some of the things. I mean, the other thing that that I, I got out of it was he had a whole chapter on getting your pieces to the right squares. And he says this is probably one of the most important chapters of the book. And I totally agree that, again, as a person who did not uh, reach title levels as a child, uh, I wouldn't know where to put a bishop. I wouldn't know like where to put a rook uh, or a queen. And I think that by understanding the pawn structure and how that's a map to help you figure out where your pieces go related to the pawn structure, is it, it's transforming.
0: Okay, quite quite a hearty recommendation. Yeah, and Neil by the way, m- mentioned um, you should tell them you you've had quite um, an improvement in your results since you started reading these positional books, right Neil?
1: Yeah, I've been winning more games. I mean lately it's been all online, but I've been winning more games and I posted a, a note on Twitter how uh, you know it has certainly not hurt my chest that I've been um, studying strategy and I think it, I think it's another, Weapon in the toolbox. I think if all you know how to do is tactics, you're you're basically waiting for a blunder. And as you get better, that's going to happen less often. And you also can't burn all your clock in the middle game because you're clueless. So there are real practical examples of how strategy is going to improve your game.
0: Yeah. And also, even if you are waiting for a blunder, like you'll learn better tips for how to wait for a blunder, you know, like you'll, you'll know, okay, I'm just going to improve my pieces. Like when you were talking about how um, Yasser was very patient, it made me think again of a recent interview with with, uh, Grandmaster Keith Arkell and reading Arkell's endings where he talks about how often all you can do is try to improve your position a tiny bit and everything else is kind of out of your hands um so yeah a lot of good stuff are we ready for favorite games or do you have any other highlights uh, on
1: no let's go for favorite games
0: okay so favorite games this one um some of my favorites this is one of my quibbles i'll spoil i might have mentioned this a little before but a lot of the games i would say maybe 30 to 40 percent so not like all of them or anything but like there's some very famous games in here now these games are famous for a reason like uh Alakine's Gun and Steinitz Blackburn and lots of these sort of um classic games. They're, they're famous because they're instructive, but for me, it was just I had seen them in other places. So it I'm always looking for fresh material. But for that reason, I mean, of course I've read Chess Tools. It's my favorite Yasser book and, you know, an all-time classic. Um, so I've seen Yasser's games, um, some obviously, and also just, you know. Being a chess fan, of course I have, but there are a lot of Sarawan games in here that I particularly liked, um, including one against uh, Czarniki, um, which is... He sacrifices material for time and just basically never lets him co- come up for air, and then wins with a beautiful combination. Um, and then he has a quote about the book about the game where he says, "Why did my attack succeed? Though it though it appeared I was at a disadvantage because I was down a pawn, my lead in development gave me more fighting units than my opponent. Dynamically, I was ahead in material for the short term. Of course, if Black had held me off for a while, I would have been in trouble. But energetic play allowed me to make use of my army's superior development." Always bear this in mind, a lead in development gives you a dynamic material advantage for a few moves before your developed pieces are taking part in the game, while your opponent's undeveloped ones are not. If you have a lead in development, you must use it before it goes away. So again, and you can see how he does a good job kind of hammering home his talking points, like not to the point of like total redundancy, but to the point of like space repetition. You'll see it once and then you'll see it again a couple chapters later. Um, Neil, what were some of your favorites? Oh,
1: yeah, my favorite game was the Serwin-Karpov-London 1982 game, where in that chapter that really changed my life around Material, he he wins a knight against Karpov, but then gives it back in return for a pawn and then a second pawn. And he really just played out his, his um, strategic wisdom. And so every time I am ahead in Material, I go to that game in my head and I think, okay, is my king safe? Are all my pieces in fighting? Do I Did I lose anything by gaining this material? Is there any positional advantages that I've lost or that, that my opponent has gained? And so that game is probably the most transformative for me. Although, you know, I will say, and this is also what separates this book, is that you mentioned the chapter of, of the strategic rates. Most strategy books don't do that, have a dedicated chapter where they're giving you some chess culture and some chess history. And so I really loved reading those books and those games. And again, you know, for you, um, all of these games are probably games you've seen many times, but for me, they weren't. And so they're really important, uh, important lessons.
0: Yeah, not all of them, but some of them. But I, again, I mean, they're they're well known for good reason. And some of them had slipped through the craps, cracks. Like my other favorite game is uh, Karpov Spassky 1974, which, you know, this is the candidate semifinal. This is uh, where this, of course, so... You know, to put this in historical context, uh, Spassky had been the best Soviet player for many years, then lost to Fischer in 1972. And now here we are climbing the mountain again to see who gets to it this time. They thought actually play Fischer. Of course, it turns out Fischer doesn't play that match, but this is like young upstart Karpov. I believe he was 23 against Spassky. And he just had a a beautiful win in the open Sicilian. Um, Yasser uses it to demonstrate target consciousness, which of course you can use many Karpov games to illustrate something like that. Um, But just a, a wonderful game with great historical context, because it was kind of like for anyone who was doubting Karpov at that time, Um, it was a wake up call and Yasser says this game was a model of strategic clarity that made Karpov the most feared player of his time. It made an enormous impression on me and just playing through it. Even like I was only later in looking at, like, he just presents it as a game. He doesn't go too much into the history of like that particular moment, but it was only when thinking about it more that I realized like, wow, that, that, you know, that's a major inflection point in terms of like how, how chess, how these chess Titans are evaluated, but the game alone is just, uh, extremely instructive. Um, so th- yeah, the, the book is well worth it. And of course there's other like Karpov, Korchinoy. there's this very famous E5, um, interference move that is also shows up in the book. So, I mean, some of these moves are just so brilliant that even if you've seen them before, um, you don't mind seeing them again. Um, as for favorite quotes, um, which I think is one of our, our last topics before we call it a, uh, um, a podcast. Um, one thing about this book is since it's not 800 pages, like reassess your chest, there, I, I at least don't have quite as much to say about it, but, um, I already mentioned the one about material being like ballast, the other one he, so he has got analogies, but not as many as Silman. I mean, he's, uh, a Silman is like the king of the analogies and yes, or as, um, some, but not as many, but, um, here is one where he's talking about using all your pieces. And he says, suppose you're the employer of four workers, two of whom never make any effort to do their jobs. Would you tolerate this situation? No. So why would you allow any of your pieces to act in the same manner? Make them earn their keep. That's great. Yeah, it's fun. Um, What about you, Neil? Do you have any favorite quotes?
1: Yeah. I love the quote he has uh, later in the book where he says, uh, control of a square alone Will not necessarily lead to victory. You must also have other advantages that combine to bring your opponent down. That's from Chapter Seven, Creation of Targets. I, I, I think that it's hard for me and probably for lots of club level players to have the patience to slowly gain several positional advantages. Get that open file. Get a little more space. Get your knight to a great square. Make sure your king is really safe. Uh, you know, all of these little things add up, and I think it's hard for kind of a slash and burn type tactical player to uh, to think that you have got to you got to sometimes win games in different ways. So that really stood out to me. It made me think of something Maurice Ashley loves to talk about, which is uh, the idea of two weaknesses. They yeah, often yeah. one weakness is not enough, and so this concept of you can you can work really hard to get a knight to a outpost, but that might not be enough. And so you've just got to keep working, working, grinding until you get enough advantages to where you often can make a a tactical breakthrough.
0: Yeah, definitely great advice. Yeah. And, and the theory of two weaknesses famously laid out in uh, Endgame Strategy by Sheroshevsky And lots of uh, canonical examples are particularly useful to keep in mind in the endgame if you're just trying to win like one weak pawn, but there's no other flank to create a diversion on. It can, it can prove um, a challenge. Um, so what are our Overall lessons from this book, Neil, or are you ready? I'm putting you on the spot here. But I believe at one point, Neil, you gave strategy. You ranked all the strategy books. I mean, I know you did a tournament too. But uh, but are you ready to straight up rank all seven of the
1: strategy books that you did? So I'm I'm doing them by level. So I did four what I called um, kind of introductory level books, and so that was Amateur's Mind by Silman. Uh, this book, uh, Steen's Simple Chess. And um, best lessons of a chess coach. So those were my four intros, and I gave Winning Chess Strategies the number one spot. I gave Steen's uh, Simple Chess the number two spot, and so I would say if if you have never mastered basic strategy, don't bother with anything else. Read Winning Chess Strategies, and then uh, I'm gonna I'm almost done with Modern Chess Strategy. By Pacman and then I'm going to do the you know ever famous my system by um, Nimzowicz once I have those two done I'll, I'll have a winner in the cl- category with how to reassess your chess so I would say for basics definitely winning chess strategy I, I want to also say you know in context I think that that learning strategy is really about three things it's about understanding the concepts number one Two, reviewing master games that show those concepts, so examples, and then three, practice with hundreds if not thousands of positional puzzles. I think this book really knows its purpose, which is the first purpose, which is to understand the concepts. It's not trying to be everything and therefore it does it serves its purpose well. So I think if your, your goal is to understand the concepts, do this and then study thousands of master games as I'm doing right now and then go after hundreds if not thousands of positional puzzles that's my strategy for um, for mastering uh, chess uh, strategy basics positional basics and so that's kind of my recommendation on an improvements so I know you had some quibbles you already got into some quibbles yeah like, what I feel are, like what my are the rest?
0: no I feel like my quibbles are basically covered so I actually you know I don't want to step on our inevitable adult improver interview too much neil that, that we still have to do at some point but i I do want to pull a little more on this thread and, um, find out more about positional puzzles, for example, because I can think of a few books that have good positional puzzles, but, um, I've previously uh, thought of that as kind of a gap in the marketplace. I don't feel like there are as many as there should be. So what have you found on that topic?
1: Yeah, so Helliston has a great yeah, book called okay. Mastering Chess Strategy. Yeah, that was the
0: main, one of the main ones I was thinking of. That book is amazing, although definitely on the more advanced side, right?
1: Yeah, and Geller has a great book of about, um, I think it's 500, something like that, positional um, problems. It's basically, you know what I do. I, I, I buy these positional books, and then I cut them up, right. as everyone hates. <laughs> and then I stick them on flashcards, and then I cycle through them, a la, uh, you know, kind of woodpecker method just like i did with tactics and so i think that i think that it, i'll say it this way i learned that strategy is way more like tactics than i realized why do i say that it's because strategy is really a lot about pattern recognition so imagine seeing one fork and be like okay yeah i'm out i'm done right I've, i know I've what I've a mastered, fork is yeah I, I will never miss a fork for the rest of my life <laughs> right like that's stupid, but people think that's how strategy works. they will like, read one strategy book and be like, okay, yeah, I'm out. And, and I think just like with tactics, you have to see examples and you have to practice with, 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 uh, do, do the work. I mean, I know that, uh, there were, was, was the book, I think it's by, um, Cheng, who's the one who did this? The oh, six hundred,
0: yeah, the, uh, practical chess exercises.
1: Yeah, practical chess exercises. I did that book. I chopped that book up earlier this year. It's three hundred tactics, three hundred positional ones. I can tell you that I got as much benefit from doing those three hundred puzzles as I did from reading this book because it doesn't come alive until you can do it. Knowing and doing are not the same thing. And doing comes from practice. So I think that that um, you know I read I read winning chess strategies probably ten years ago, and it had almost no impact on my chess. But doing it as part of a program, understanding the the concepts doing hundreds of master games or preferably thousands of master games where you actually get a board out and you work through it and you try to figure it out and then doing puzzles. I think you have to have a program. I don't think you can read any one positional book and think you're going to master positions. I think two problems club players have is they overestimate their abilities and they have kind of a a random approach to study. And I think that if you, If you take it seriously, like I spent four years, four hard years to master basic tactics and it has changed my game. And now I'm going to spend three hard years on strategy and then end games and then openings finally. And I'm not going to take too much from your future podcast about just improvement, but I think that I am getting better every day by doing a little bit of chess every day in a serious way, not, you know, five minutes of end games and then 20 minutes of strategy and then 15 minutes of attack. I don't know how I'd learn that way. So I, I think there's something about being uh, totally immersed in a topic that's helpful. Um, so anyway, so, so no, that's a little bit on that.
0: No, it's a good point. And I also, I love the patience. I mean, I love that like your goals are are measured and super long term. So, I mean, that's something that, that I find myself preaching a lot. I mean, people fall in love with chess and they're rated 1400 and they say, you know, can like, can I become a master? And that that's a great goal. And it's, you know, it's probably at the outer bounds of what's possible, I'd say. So, I mean, no one knows, you know, I don't know, no one else knows, but it, it would be, it would be an unusual feat. Let's say that based on what people have done before, but it's also, it's just so far away, your life is going to change so much. Like n- no one's doing that in a year in all likelihood. So just make a goal, make a plan like neo says and make a goal that's attainable um and then update the goals as you go on, update your priors as they say um based on what changes in the new information you get. So yeah, I think that's one great thing about neo's approach and that's why you're you're inspiring so many people on Twitter and becoming an influencer so every man sends you books and and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, well, just I'll you mentioned a couple of quibbles, I'll mention a couple myself. Like one of the things that I'm tracking is how many master games I've played through from, you know, game, you know, move one through the end. And I'm right now at 430 some master games that I've played through on my board. Uh, this book, they often will start a game on like move 20. And I like, I wanted to see the whole thing. So, like, that's a minor quibble. I mean, the other thing that I actually thought was as an adult, I think it's awesome but I think uh, if I was a child, I mean, Yasser is a colorful man and he talks about multiple times his lust for pawns and how there's going to be an orgy on a square. And, you know, these are words that uh, I can see a young child asking their parents to under explain to them. So that's, it kind of depends on where you're coming at and what your age is, but like, I love the Yasser, like give me more Yasser. It's like cowbell, can't have enough cowbell. But I can see how some parents might be like, what is in this book?
0: Yeah, that, that's a good warning for parents because it's It's the material as a level that could be quite useful for, for a lot of fast improving kids. So it's, it's good that you give that warning. Yeah. And I don't really have any other quibbles. I mean, I, I give this book an unequivocal thumbs up. Um, and even though, again, I'd seen some of the games before there've been other books I've reviewed on this podcast where even when I think they're worthwhile overall, there were times where it was a drag shout out Mm. to blindfold chess. Um, so, (laughs) (laughs) but that's not the case with this book. I mean, it was a pleasure to read. Um, and, and for, for what it attempts to do, as you say, it's, it's wildly successful.
1: Yeah, it is a joy. There aren't many chess books that I would say. You know, there aren't many writers. I think Silman is a joy to read. I think Yasser is a joy to read. They both helped write this book. And I think that if you're going to go through the slog of reading hundreds of pages, you want it to be around something that's really grabs you. And the pros matter. That's one of the ways I rank. You know, when I talked about ranking the, uh, the basic chess strategy books. And next they'll be ranking these intermediate strategy books. Pros will be one of those factors. Sure. The choice of, of positions matter and games matter and the, the cover, the completeness matters. But if you're not in like excited when you pick the book up every morning, then, then that's, that's hard. So anyway, I, I love this book. I hope that I've inspired at least one person to give it a go. Uh, it's, it's 240 some pages, you eight pages a day. You'll finish it in a month. You'll actually finish a book. I I talked to lots of Mm -hmm. my friends on chess, Twitter who own hundreds of books, never read zero. This is a book you can finish. You'll be proud of yourself. You'll be a better player. You'll thank yourself. You should, you should, uh, you know, give yourself a little party when you're done.
0: Awesome. Great stuff, Neil. And thank you again for coming on. You you killed it as usual. Um, before I let you go, I did, I forgot to mention at the top, but if anyone's interested in guest co-hosting, I still have um, some people I'm meaning to get back to, and I still have, you know, handful of people that I, that we can roll out over time, but um, go to perpetual chess pod.com slash recaptured. If you'd like to come read and talk about a book, I'm always looking for, for new volunteers. Although Neil, of course, you're always welcome back as well. I know that you're grinding out these books at an astounding pace. So happy to have you help out. Um, it, it's, it's a great service.
1: Well, I'll tell you, Ben, I, I was a hero of this podcast. I, I mean, I, I just a big fan boy of this podcast. Um, before you had me on for the first one, I, I've I think well, listened to all of them, and I still uh, enjoy them when they come out every week. And for me, it's just it's just a treat to be able to be on twice. And you know, I hope that I I am a voice of an adult who's trying to get better and doesn't have it all figured out, but is is fighting the good fight to do so. And I, I would just say that uh, you know these podcasts are in some ways more valuable, the ones around um, learning to get better are in some ways more valuable for the average club player than uh, talking to a GM. As interesting as they all are, uh, the practicality of talking through how to get better is really inspiring
0: thank you yeah and i get that for sure that's why we we try to do it as much as we can and maybe we'll we'll look to do even more in the future so yeah it's yeah. it's important and it's fun too i mean it's it's amazing how how i mean again this has come up before but like we talk about it so much but we just don't know so that's that's part of what adds to the allure and the intrigue is we have some ideas about what best practices are for getting better at chess but but there's just enough unknown that like it it keeps you um keeps you coming back and keeps you wondering and wanting to engage and discuss it. So thank you again and yeah, if you guys aren't already following Neil at Neil Bruce on Twitter, you should definitely do that. If you're not on Twitter, um ignore all the political you should join, follow follow the chess people, ignore all the politics, ignore all the trolls and it, it's it's worthwhile dialogue and people posting chess puzzles and stuff um so neil i'm gonna i do have blindfold puzzles uh for the listeners but i'm i'm gonna spare you the torture and uh and bid you another thank you and a good night
1: take care ben okay
0: here we are with two blindfold puzzles to keep you busy for the month of october number one is a mate and two puzzle this one is taken from My heroes over at chess steps. This is not intended as a blindfold puzzle, but it functions as one. So mate in two, here comes the piece arrangement. As always, if you get stumped or if you want to see it, I have two links to two diagrams in the show notes. The first one links to just the diagram. The second one links to the diagram with the solution. So here we go. White has a king on C6 and a queen on F6. And that's it. So for white. King on c6, queen on f6. For black, pawn on a2, and a pawn on b4, and their king is on a5. So black's pawn one square from queening on a2. So once again, black pawn on a2, pawn on b4, and king on a5, and it is white to move and mate in two. That's puzzle number one. I think it's solvable for most levels if you stick with it. So puzzle number two is going to be more challenging. This one is taken from a game. So I'm just going to read off the moves. This is from a Judith Polgar simul. She played a tactic to end the game rather quickly. as against Ken Streck in 1999. So here come the moves. I'll try to say it slow for you guys. And again, the list of the moves will be in the show description. So if you just want to double check what they are and play through them in your head, you can. And then if you click on the link, you'll see what judit played e4 d6 pawn to d4 knight to f6 knight to c3 pawn to g6 knight to f3 bishop to g7 bishop to g5 black plays bishop to g4 white plays h3 Black retreats the bishop to d7. White plays queen to d2. Black plays bishop to c6. White plays pawn to d5. Black plays bishop back to d7. White plays pawn to e5. Black plays d takes e5. White plays knight takes e5. Black plays pawn to c6. Judith plays D takes C6. Black plays bishop takes C6. And I'm going to stop there. What did Judith play at that point to make her opponent resign? So could be a move, could be two moves. And I will read it once more from the top. One white plays pawn to E4. Black plays pawn to d6. Move 2. White plays pawn to d4. Black plays knight to f6. Move 3. White plays knight to c3. Black plays pawn to g6. Move 4. White plays knight to f3. Black plays bishop to g7. Move 5. White plays bishop to g5. Black plays bishop to g4. Move 6. White plays pawn to h3. Black plays bishop back to d7. Move 7. White plays queen to d2. Black plays bishop to c6. Move 8. White plays pawn to d5. Black plays bishop to d7. Move 9, white plays e5, black plays pawn takes pawn on e5. Move 10, white plays knight takes e5, black then plays pawn to c6. Move 11, white plays d takes c6, black plays bishop takes c6, and now it is white to move and win material. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening. I will catch you guys soon, whether it be on an interview or on next month's Chess Books Recaptured. Take care. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about perpetual chess. You can spread the word via word of mouth or positive reviews on podcast platforms. We are up to 98 written reviews on Apple Podcasts, and only one of them aggravates me amazing support. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Beneficial1 or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. You should also check out the Perpetual Chess Instagram page. But more than anything, I want to express my gratitude to those who provide financial support to the show. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable.com for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to help sustain and improve the show. And while they're at it, find out about future guests and send in some great questions. So, without further ado, I'd like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Andy Ryerson, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, Chessmood.com, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Drake Domingue, I am Eric Rosen, Farah Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harfst, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada silva the law offices of Stuart Katz, Leelaanalysis.com for cloud-based, Leela Engine Analysis, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdnays Twitch channel, Peter Sadi, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Robert Coucher, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Steven Martinez, Thomas Stenix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of strongchess.com, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Bean, and I would also like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Aniti Deer, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner Christopher Shabri Chris Locke, Christopher Wood I am Christoph Selecki a.k.a. Chess Explain, Coach Jay's Chess Academy Costa Carras Courtney Fry Craig Mallon Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor Dave Saylor David Bleskicek David Cramley of Chessable.com Dalen Shelton Dirk Decker Drake Domingue Dwayne Edmonds Ed Daly Ethan Smith Hallelujah Cat Ian Mason FM Donnie Ariel Fox Valley Chess Club Francis latarte Lavois, Frank Tortorus, MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderveld, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovacs, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, J. Deep Chakrabarti, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Stranad, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I.M. Kare Christensen, W.G.M. Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reiforth, Laura Boyowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solomon, Neil Bruce, Negmat, Miladjanov, Olaf Mueller Michaels. GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalvo, Richard Hollenbach, Robert Turner, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube Channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tata Abrahamyan, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Kolmanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Storianov. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I will catch you all next week.
1: Podcast Network.